This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. We're your hosts, Alyssa and Gary. Welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute, a podcast sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. Brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. Learn more about us and our mission by following the Homeland Hero Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute. My name is Alyssa, and joining me as host for, I think, the very first time, Gary. The debut. <laughs> Welcome to the team. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, today we have on the podcast, um, this is a very first of many, hopefully, um, we are speaking with some medical professionals and people in the healthcare sector of helping veterans. And we're very excited to welcome Dan Jarvis and Dr. Janelle Royster. How are you folks today? We're doing fine. Thank you for, for the invite. And just to clarify a little bit, I'm not yeah. actually a mental health provider. Um, I'm a peer coach through the nonprofit, but I'll go into detail what that means uh, in a little while. Absolutely. Um, hi, Janelle. Hi. <laughs> now How she, on the other hand, is. Yes. So tell us, um, we'll start with you, Janelle. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, did you, you are a veteran as well, correct? Correct. I am a Air Force veteran. Awesome. And then you went back to school when you came home. Right. Uh, yeah. I was a division manager of an auto parts store and uh, they wanted me to be a regional manager. And in order to do that, I had to have a bachelor's. What happened was I got an associate's actually in nonprofit organizations. And then I received a bachelor's in psychology. It was supposed to be in business, but I, I was trying to process paying $726 a credit hour for something that I had already learned. Hmm. And I took a philosophy course and it just changed my whole life because he said, you can think outside the box. And I went, really? <laughs> so then I pursued uh, a master's and doctorate in industrial organizational psychology because I wanted to intertwine both the business and the psychology. Sure. And then I was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So I went back to school to get my mental health counselor master's and I was struggling with therapy. I was not finding very many resources or very many opportunities to cure my problem. Wow. <laughs> so I decided, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So I pursued my master's in mental health counseling, and now I'm pursuing an educational doctorate in leadership. Wow, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And Dan, you have, um, you're a veteran as well. I'm just a grunt. I don't have any of those accolades. That she's, <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a veteran of the United States Army, um, and I'm also a former law enforcement officer in Florida. So my story is... Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a gut punch. So if you got a second, I'll kind of share a little bit. Sure. Um, I, 
originally I went in the military right out of high school. I was 17 years old and we're talking 1988. So I was in from 88 to 91. And then I got out and went in, went to college and then went into law enforcement. And I, you know, I'd seen and dealt with a lot of trauma in the job on law enforcement side. And then 9-11 happened and I was hemming and hawing and it finally made a decision. I was going to go back on active duty, um, take the fight to the enemy, you know, be a part of the solution to what we were uh, confronted with that that day. And uh, 2004, I was back on active duty. We had to go all the way back through training and, and, um, and I went to a unit that was already deployed. So I didn't get to deploy for a little while. And then the unit was shipped out. We ended up doing a 15 month deployment to Iraq. And that was 2006, 2007. You know, you're talking about a long time overseas. You know, it was, it was a very long deployment. Um, Our battalion, we, we took a lot of casualties. Um, Yeah. I was an infantry guy. So I was a ground pounder Um, and I made rank pretty quickly. And I was, I was a, um, I ended up being a squad leader pretty, pretty soon. I made, I went back in as an E4, made E5 within 12 months. And then I was E6 another 12 months after that. So I had a, an infantry squad. So that's like two four man fire teams. And then usually a gun assigned team. Uh, it's a heavy gun system, uh, M240 Bravo and a, an assistant. So, you know, you're over there and you're, you're operational with um, between nine and 11 guys. And we did a lot of, um, a lot of urban fighting in Iraq. It was a lot of door to door, house to house. Um, the ranges went two way pretty quick. You know, in other words, when, when the rounds went down range, they came back at us. So we had a lot of that. And I'd say in that deployment, we lost 18 Americans. Actually, it was 17 American soldiers in our, in our battalion was killed or attached to the battalion. And we also lost one of our interpreters. So it was a pretty brutal, uh, pretty bl- brutal deployment. And you know, and then after that, I went straight out of um, a deployment. I re-enlisted to go back to Iraq, and then I got selected by the Department of Army to become a drill sergeant. So I did drill sergeant duty for a couple years at Fort Knox, um, literally right at the tail end before they closed out the, the basic training units and the OSIT units at Fort Knox. Uh, and then I went directly to another deploying unit. So I went to a unit, and within four weeks, I was deployed to Afghanistan. And that was a totally different a totally different uh, battlefield than Iraq. It was very rural, very um, a lot of mud homes and very separated mountains everywhere. You know, and and that was that was actually probably my worst deployment because um, half my squad was medevaced out of Afghanistan um, due to IED injuries. Right. Um, and that was that was a pretty that was pretty hard. By the time my fourth guy was medevaced out, and then we had one of my kids that was killed. Um, I just kind of felt the responsibility of, um, of his death, you know, as, as a lead striker, it was a striker unit. And as a lead truck commander, my job was to find and secure the safeguard, the route and secure any IEDs and bring up the explosives guys. And August 19th, 2011, the IED blast blew up on the fourth vehicle in our convoy. And I looked back and I saw it was our, our main gun system, which is like a striker that looks like a tank with bait with eight big wheels. Mm-hmm. And realizing that that was the, probably the worst vehicle that could have got hit in the convoy because it had a flat bottom, whereas all the other strikers had double V-holes. So we could take a hit pretty good. Um, and then we lost Doug Cordo that day. And, you know, that was just like, man, you know, changed my whole world. Um, at the end of July, I stepped on a pressure plate. I detonated an IED that was about five feet away. Wow. Uh, so well, they, they diagnosed it as a moderate traumatic brain injury. So it's a little bit bigger than a concussion, but not like 
um, replacing, you know, titanium pieces of your skull. So I had, you know, sleep deprived for most of the rest of that deployment. And that's one of the reasons why I felt so guilty when we lost Doug, because, you know, had I said something, had I, you know, told one of my, you know, commanders or my platoon leader, Hey, look, I need somebody else up front, you know, would Doug still be here? Um, so that was kind of like my Afghanistan deployment. And then to finish off the deployment, I got a red cross notice and my mom died at the very end. Oh my God. So I had to leave Afghanistan literally like three weeks before the deployment was supposed to, to finish. And I had to leave my guys there and, you know, just dealing with all that. And then I find myself back in, in Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, Fort Wainwright was my duty station. And I started drinking myself to sleep pretty regularly. So that just kind of became my pattern of behavior. And you know, that's how I dealt with the stress and, I did a lot of self-isolation mm-hmm. and, you know, the kids, when they came home, uh, a lot of them really struggled with the emotional aspects of the loss that they endured. Um, so half my kids were medevaced. One of my kids was killed. And then two or three of the other soldiers ended up being separated from service uh, for disciplinary issues, because that's part of what happens when, you know, when you're dealing with trauma, a lot of them will self-medicate and then they'll make really poor decisions and, so it was kind of hard to deal with that as well. And, and, you know, then I finally came to the point where I was like, well, not married. I have no kids, no responsibilities. And then I'm like, do I ask for help? Well, I didn't want to do that because as a leader, we, we put ourselves in positions where we don't want to lose the faith of our men. We don't want to lose the faith of our commanders. And the decision became pretty apparent that suicide was probably my best option. So I can, I can tell you the day was March 2nd. And the reason why I can tell you the day, well, two things happened that stopped it. One, the kids that lived in the apartment above me, when I heard them running on my ceiling, I realized I did not want to put a high powered rifle round through the floor. And then the next morning I got a phone call and my, my driver from Afghanistan, Ryan asked if I had heard what happened with Corey. And I'm, that's never a good question in the military. Uh, so nobody what's, what's up. And he said, Corey shot and killed himself last night. Now, when he said that, I just kind of looked at the rifle in the corner of my room. I was like, holy cow. I said, you know, I thought to myself, nobody had a clue that I was struggling. Nobody had a clue Corey was struggling. And then you realize there is a serious issue here. So I always say Corey saved my life. And unfortunately, it's when he took his own, you know, seeing how it affected the men and, and the, you know, the. I didn't want to give one of my guys permission to do that. So I, I, I continue to fight and struggle through it. Um, I still drank quite a bit. And then I found myself uh, medically separated from service September 11th of 2014. After three surgeries, the army said, we need your position for a healthy soldier. And thank you for your service. It's time for you to go. So then that uniform came off and that's when I hit uh, the lower 48, as we called it in Alaska and came back to Florida. So now my identity was stripped away. You know, that's kind of what started my whole journey, you know, and I'll, I'll toss it back to Janelle and she can share a little bit about her stuff. Um, and then I'll kind of circle back why I've gotten into doing what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Yep. So I worked in acute care psychiatric facility during my master's and doctorate. I did my dissertation on one of the facilities that I worked with. Uh, I worked in a residential unit. Actually, I worked in two. I was also a a supervisor for one of the houses, which uh, had 12 adolescent boys who were diagnosed with autism. 
So that was pretty interesting to be able to learn how to navigate through some of their traumatic events without them being able to communicate effectively. So that taught me a lot. Yeah. Then uh, I went through uh, my residency. I, I received all my hours in record time because, you know, people don't show up for shifts and you have to stay. And anyway, so what I did is uh, you during your residency for the master's in mental health counseling, you have to have uh, about 700 hours face to face. I believe is 300, maybe a little less than half that. What had happened was I completed all my hours in one semester. So I had two semesters where they pretty much just said, go get trained in some things. So what I did is I got trained in everything I could find. So I was trained in dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rapid or well, rationally motive behavioral therapy, emotional intelligence, uh, hypnotherapy. I was trained in trauma-focused CBT, uh, crisis trauma specialist. I mean, you name it, I, I found it. <laughs> and it. I learned a lot, but the problem was, is I was not helping myself. So the, the end of the day, what I really wanted to do is clear my post-traumatic stress from my life. You know, I, I had pretty challenging childhood as well as a pretty challenging marriage. So I was trying to find solutions to all of that. Then what happened is I had a friend of mine who went to a training that Dan invited him to because he's a licensed mental health counselor in Florida. And he said, I found something because he had dragged me all over. Like we went to Atlanta for hypnotherapy, you know, we for CBT, I think we went to like Nebraska, like somewhere crazy. But I, I continued to go to all these trainings and try and focus on trying to find something that would work for me. Well, he had found the training for me. So what he did is he told me that 220 would sponsor me. And I'm like, what is 220? So he's like, just get up to New York, take this training. It will change your life. I said, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> here we go again. And uh, I started talking to Dan. I needed uh, the the code to get into the training. And it's uh, a neuro-linguistic programming type training. And we, which is something that mental health counselors don't really venture into. So it was nothing like anything I'd ever seen before. So I got the code from him and then I just, you know, I, I continued to talk to him, especially after it. I mean, this process, this neuro-linguistic programming and visual imagery and all this wonderful thing had changed my life. So I was very impacted by this. And then I just kind of stuck with Dan. And once I took the training as a clinician, you want to use the process, right? So I started using the process and the challenges I was finding was the individuals I was working with, the, the script that they have you read wasn't working for every single person. And I so desperately wanted these people to feel better. I wanted them to feel like I felt. So I started modifying what we would call kinesthetic disassociation. And we started gearing it toward clients. So I had always been, you know, I work right now, I'm a clinical supervisor for community mental health. So I work with the severely mentally ill, mostly Medicaid clients. And with that, you have to gear everything toward the client. So we call it client-centered. And what we've developed, which is pretty amazing, is we've developed several different processes that are geared toward the individuals. Well, what I did is I kind of 
after I took the training and I, and I started moving toward, you know, working with clients and changing things up and hitting resistance in different areas and in wanting to work more with the veteran population, the emergency responders and things like that. I, I communicated more and more and more with Dan and I just kind of hung on to a Superman cape for dear mm-hmm. life. And I've been hanging on ever since. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to let Dan talk about his experience. Yeah. So my experience, when I left military service, I was still really, really struggling and I was still self-medicating. My, the nightmares would be ferocious, you know, ferocious. My, um, the thoughts always bombarding and nobody had ever labeled me with PTSD, but I kind of knew, Hey, something's just not right here. And then I was like, man, I've got to get my spiritual, physical, mental health all in check. So I started trying to go back to the gym, start eating healthier, you know, trying to go back into church to get my spiritual life back in order. And then I ended up finding my wife. We, we didn't, she didn't know me from military service, but we ended up getting married um, in April of 2016. And, and I went back into law enforcement. So I was working as a deputy sheriff in central Florida and I worked on a crime suppression team. So I did a lot of street drug interdiction kind of stuff. Uh, and I was okay in a uniform. All right. I felt normal in a uniform and I didn't realize why until later. Um, I, I got to the point where I think at the time I was, I'm like 44 years old. I'm, I'm chasing 18 year old, you know, meth heads through the woods and trying to do a young man's game and realized pretty quickly that, you know, I had a lot of back issues, um, spinal stenosis, the gun belt was literally compressing on my, um, bundle of nerves in my lower back. And I had sciatic pain, which was like horrific. I think my last six months at the sheriff's office, I literally would have to lift my leg into the patrol car. And I just got to the point where I don't want to, I didn't want to put somebody else in in jeopardy if I wasn't functioning at hundred percent. So my wife and I talked and realized that, you know, it's time to go ahead. I was vested in the state of Florida retirement from both periods of of service. So I called it a day. I I resigned um, or retired technically. And um, then it was like, all right, now I got to find something else to do. And that's when the demons came back. You know, they say that the idle mind is a devil's playground. I think a lot of your listeners are going to understand what I'm talking about here. Um, That honey-do list was only so long. And then when I finished all my tasks and then there's nothing but time on your hands, that's when everything just kind of flooded back. And my nightmares came back. It got really intense. My wife would, you know, rub my back in the middle of the night, you know, trying to calm me down. Um, one morning I even, I woke up and she's like, did you take a shower last night? I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, there's sand all over your pillow. And I looked at her, I'm like, what? It was actually salt crystals. I had sweat so bad in my sleep. That's what happens when you have uh, post-traumatic stress and you have those nightmares, literally your body's doing cardio in your sleep. So, you know, she finally asked me what I had gone through in the service. And, and cause I had never shared with her my stories. I didn't want to burden her with that. Um, and then I finally told her what I had been through and what I had seen and what I had done. And she looked at me like, you are going to have to get some help or I am because I don't know how to deal with this. So I'm not wanting to screw up my relationship. I did what all the other veterans do. I went to the VA and I first thing they did was they sat me down with a psychiatrist and wrote me a prescription um, for drugs. And I'm like, it's not really what I'm looking for. And then I started doing therapy through the VA. Um, The VA uses something called prolonged exposure. Now, for those of you in the audience that have listed, that have gone through prolonged exposure, uh, it can be a very um, 
invasive treatment. So you literally open the wounds, the emotional wounds. It's like pulling that tourniquet off. And then they just flood you with all those emotions that you were exposed to during an event. And they have you talk about the event over and over. Um, and, and the treatment itself is like between 14 and 16 weeks. So I go to my second session and I'm getting more and more agitated, more and more triggered. And then I'm getting ready to do the third session and the VA calls and says, we got to cancel your appointment. Um, the doctor is going to a conference I'm like, okay, so can I reschedule? Well, yeah, but the only availability we have is in four weeks. I'm like, okay, four weeks. All right. So I made the schedule, the appointment. And then, you know, so I'm doing nothing for four weeks. I've just pretty much ripped open these emotional wounds that I had been doing a really good job burying. And then four weeks I go, I do another two appointments. And then they called me um, after my getting ready to do my fifth. And they said, well, we have to cancel because the doctor's got to go out of town again. Like, okay. So now it was eight weeks before they could get in, get me to see somebody. And I'm like, eight weeks. I said, you guys are killing me. You know, I'm like, I've got a lot more than one traumatic event I need to work through. And if this is going to be 16 weeks and I'm having to take these breaks, I'm going to be in this forever. And I just said, I'll, I'll call you guys back when, when I know my schedule and I'll schedule something. I said, okay, that was 2017. And that was the last time I had any communication with scheduling any appointments. I, I was done with the VA. And then my wife realized that, man, I was getting worse. So I looked for other solutions. I went, did the EMDR, which is um, eye movement desensitization resolution or something. That's where you're looking at the lights back and forth. Um, I just found that challenging. I was kind of all over the place. And then I went through something called accelerated resolution therapy, which I found to be um, much better than the other solutions. But I felt a little better, but it wasn't, I was not, nowhere near 100%. And I had done multiple sessions with the ART. And then, you know, I, I met some gentleman. Uh, it was a retired Army colonel inviting me to a men's leadership weekend. And I met some other people involved with some research with post-traumatic stress. And they invited me in September of 2018 to go out to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and watch this process. And they were making some very bold claims. I'm like, you know, I've, I've been through cognitive processing therapy. I've been through EMDR, I've been through ART, I've been through prolonged exposure. And you're telling me that it, and with a 90% certainty, you can fix my PTS with um, between three and five sessions. I'm like, I got to experience this. If I'm going to recommend this to anybody, I want to, I want to be on the receiving end of it. So the, the trainer at the time says, well, you want to do it today? I'm like, yeah, I'll do it today. He goes, how about in 10 minutes? I'm like, sure. He goes, how about in front of the class? So I'm like, <laughs> Okay. I'll, there was 25 licensed mental health counselors in the room and I got to sit up in front of the class and I went through the same process Janelle went through. Um, it's called the reconsolidation of traumatic memories protocol, the RTM protocol. And it was created by an organization called the research and recognition project out of, uh, I think it's Corning, New York. And I sat there and literally within 45 minutes, I go through this process and my what they call a subjective unit of distress when you think about the event or you tell the event you know i was a 10 on a 0 to 10 scale and literally in 45 minutes i'm like a 1 and i could tell the story without any emotions attached to it and that was my paradigm shift 
And that's when I realized, holy cow. So then we kind of got behind that organization and we were, we were funding training for mental health counselors. We were raising money. Um, that's when I met uh, Norman Bissell. He was a mental health counselor in, in central Florida and he came to Tallahassee and, and we did the very first joint training between peer, peer counselors and licensed counselors because um, it took me about a year to get that organization to allow us to bring it into the peer world. Um, but then we kind of found there's a lot of challenges with um, peer coaches because the, the RTM protocol is very clinical and we were having to follow their clinical process and then realizing when you start listening to people's trauma, um, that just presented its own challenges. And then uh, Norman connected me with Janelle and, you know, we, you know, I told her about what we're doing. We'd fund the training. We'd get her up to, to uh, New York. And that was in January of this year. I think January 9th is when she finished the training. Um, and so quickly she started getting on board with, with the process and started working with veterans that we would send her and uh, family members and first responders. And, we felt that Janelle was very altruistic, much in the same way we are, because we're a nonprofit and we don't have anybody that's on has any paid staff. And all the work we do is free and pro bono to our communities. So we ended up inviting Janelle to to develop or to join the board of directors as a voting board member. And over time, we we discuss ways to you know refine the processes that the NLP work world has already been, you know, this stuff has been around since the 1970s. I don't think people realize that the, the, uh, the way to heal trauma has been around for over 40 years and nobody's done research to it. It wasn't until Dr. Burke with the research and recognition actually started doing research to validate the process that it is now a viable option. That's, that's considered what they call evidence-based um, so Walter Reed is doing a major study right now, funded by the VA, to compare it with the prolonged exposure. And the prolonged exposure, that's the, the gold seal standard for the VA, and it's it's hot garbage. I'll just I'll just put it like that. It's 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 horrible. Um, because what we're able to do with the neurolinguistic world, um, we've we've kind of developed our own process. We call it the tactical resiliency process. Sorry, that's my fault. I'm a military guy, so it's we, we call it a tactical resiliency because of how quickly you can administer it uh, within uh, a very short period of time after a traumatic event. Because what we're seeing is, you know, we had a law enforcement officer in Tennessee who was in a shooting and was shot at. And one of our peer coaches in Knoxville was able to work with this police officer very within th two to three days of the event and bring that subjective stress level from 10 to zero. So it's able to neurologically disconnect the emotion from the memory very quickly so that it doesn't present as a problem, you know, six months, a year, 20 years down the road. Uh, and that's pretty exciting. And, and we're now we've actually changed a little bit of our our, you know, our methods. We're now doing research. So we, we've done our we've actually accumulated data on our first hundred cases. Uh, we had literally 30 veterans. We had. Uh, four active duty service members. We had seven firefighters, six police officers, 19 mental health counselors, and 30 civilians. And the average score for that collective group was 54.5. And now the way they score it, and I'll let Janelle go into a little bit, is between 20 and 80 on the on the on the 20 question 
uh, survey is considered post-traumatic stress. So that means you're having frequent nightmares or frequent thoughts bombarding you or emotions associated with trauma that keep, you know, coming into you. Um, so our average score was 54 and a half, which is, which is very high. And that's, it's dangerous. Once you hit over 40, you're getting into, um, your quality of life really starts to diminish. And within one to four sessions, the average score was just a little over two. So, 100% of those in that case study all lost or would have clinically lost a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress. In other words, they were able to heal the, um, the triggers, the, the emotions, um, the trauma response, and then your brain goes into uh, what they call sleep reconsolidation phase where those memories, once you sever the emotion, you know, one part goes to the hippocampus, that's your emotion. And then your memories go into your cerebellum. And then once they separate, they don't come back together. And then finally, you're hitting the REM sleep cycle, and then your brain processes it. And never do they come back together. So we're seeing significant quality of life increases within our veteran and first responder population to to include families. Uh, We've also added, you know, emergency medicine, like doctors, nurses to our mission, uh, especially with the onset of all the COVID and, and the stress that they're having to deal with that. So we've, we even had some of the nurses, we had like, I think four nurses in the study as well. So it's pretty incredible. It's pretty awesome to watch it. I've done it uh, probably with 70 clients and I've, I've been successful in every single one of them. As long as they're willing to do the visual formats as, as they're instructed to in the process, the brain automatically will resolve the trauma and um, whether the person believes in it or not, is it relevant as long as they do the visual formats? And I'll share one story with you. And there was a friend, a couple we brought up from the Virgin Islands. It was a husband and wife. Both of them had PTSD. Both of them had trauma. And I explained in the process, this is what you're going to, you know, this is what you're going to go through. This is what you can expect. And the Marine, he had a beard about a foot long, you know, a lot of your, the typical, you know, stay away from me kind of beards and sitting in my car. And this is a Sunday night at 11 o'clock at night. He's like, I think you're full of shit. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, okay, cool. We need skeptics. That's the only way to get people to buy into the process. And then he was like, if this thing works the way you say it works, I'll get 220 tattooed on my ass. Just real, real sarcastic. All right. Um, and if you go to our webpage, you can go and you can watch his video with him and his wife. And he, he pretty much spells it out. But that day three or four, I don't remember which, um, he looks at me and he smirks, he smiles, he kind of drops his head. I'm like, Sean, what's going on, buddy? He said, Well, I'm a man of my word. I think I need your logo. And I'm like, awesome. <laughs> So I sent him my logo. I said, don't put it on your ass, put it on your forearm. Let somebody ask you what it means so you can share it with them. You know, but that's the cool part about the process. As long as you do the visualizations as you, as they coach you to do them, the brain does it automatically. You can't stop it. You can't prevent it. That's so, an incredible story. Yeah, that's, and it's, it's awesome. And, and Janelle, I mean, you're talking about um, altruistic. She's at, I'm going to, I'm going to get it wrong. Cause I always do 180, Janelle. 187 okay, as of did. today. She's cleared 187 people who had a diagnosis of PTSD who no longer have a diagnosis. In other words, they don't have all those symptoms that are associated with it. So you're able to shut off those nightmares and those those flashbacks and those intrusive thoughts. Um, And now we're doing it. We're we're training peers, peer coaches to do it. So like veterans, uh, first responders, we've got probably seven police officers throughout the U.S., uh, we have some agencies that we're going to be going out and doing some mass trainings with their peer support teams 
so that we can become part of our own solution. Whereas, you know, Janelle is a what we call a force multiplier, <laughs> but it's hard to get a cop to want to sit there and go through mental health counseling because we don't want those labels. Mm-hmm. Whereas now they can literally go to their zone partners and say, hey, man, I'm struggling with this. Can you kind of run me through it with that TRP? And then they can fix it. You know, we've we've got police officers that are using it right now um, with with active active officers, you know, and changing lives. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's humbling to be a part of this process. And I will say Janelle is the one that kind of changed my way of thinking. She's like, well, why do we need any content? I'm like, what do you mean? You know, cause that's the other process. The RTM protocol requires you to give content at the front and the back end of it. Um, so we just basically modeled some earlier processes. We developed our own and we use no content. So now People are able to work on trauma and childhood. And, mm-hmm. and I'll be honest, I mean, I, I spent seven years as a deputy and 12 years in the military and 27 months in the Middle East. And my worst trauma was when I was 11 years old, things that I had absolutely zero control over. And to be able to get rid of it, it's it's remarkable. So now we can do it. Hey, man, just go ahead and think about that event. And we just set up the process. They don't even have to say a word and they can get rid of, you know, trauma from childhood sexual abuse or child abuse or, you know, maybe they were in a bad car crash as a kid, whatever, you know, or it's a domestic violence situation. You know, it's 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 incredible. Yeah. I want to go ahead and take just a quick break for anyone listening. Feel free to pause or check out. Um, Dan, could you do a little promo quick for us about where they can see that video of your friend and your website and any socials that you might want to throw out there? Sure. They can go to www.22zero.org. That's 220.org. That's our website. Um, We have a 220 on Facebook. (laughs) And 220.follow.me is our Instagram. And you can find our, our content there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll be right back, everyone. So, Dan, you were, uh, you were an infantryman. Yes, I was a grown. Yeah, so that, that's, that was my uh, MOS as well. Right. Uh, what uh, what were your most uh, fearful routes in Iraq? Well, Iraq, we were outside of Kirkuk, which okay. uh, we had. We were in a battalion size five called McHenry, and that was in Hawija. So we had Hawija, Albasi, and Riyadh were the three areas that were closest to where we patrolled. Um, route Trans Am was our main route, main supply route. And we literally, we had a uh, battle position at the end of Route Trans Am, which was at the onset of Hawija, because most of the insurgents were coming from the city of Hawija, and half of them were Iraqi police. Yeah. So that our job at that battle position was to safeguard, you know, kind of like, you know, a blocking position for Route Trans Am, which was one of the MSRs to our FOB from the city. Um, so we had to try to prevent them from placing IEDs from there all the way back to our FOB. Um, that was probably our, our most harrowing area because we had um, we had a pretty significant um, attack in it was September of 2006, where we heard the mortars landing about 400 meters outside of the battle position about 10 o'clock that morning. And we only heard one come in. And then one of the soldiers says, oh, they must be zeroing their mortars. And then literally an hour and a half later, uh, they started 
lobbing mortars in, lobbing mortars in, small arms fire, RPGs. Uh, we had intel that they were going to get a VBIED, and it was they they had a report of a a, a garbage truck. Um, and so while v- we're VBIED is a vehicle borne ID, yeah, so vehicle borne ID. So um, while we've got this going on, literally the firefight's going. I'm in a in our crow vehicle, which is a the the gun system you're in, inside the the humvee and the the 50 cals mounted on top so i'm in the in the truck with my soldier and we're doing rotations out there because that was our biggest gun system we had and i remember falling asleep and then i hear i feel this arm reach over hit me in the chest and i, I just kind of woke up and and vivian was like they're shooting at us and the only thing i could think of is we'll just shoot back and then he started returning fire and then all of a sudden here comes all these Mortar rounds coming in, RPGs hitting the building. I mean, it was a free-for-all for a good five, six minutes. They got Kiowa Warriors coming on station. Um, and then there's no comms with the guys in in the uh, in the building. You know, the it was like a unconstructed two-story house, probably five thousand square feet. It was one of Saddam's uh, loyalist homes that was being built. And I, I had no radio comms. There was no nobody answering. And we got this major firefight going on. And I'm hearing the RPGs hitting the building and the gunfire. Um, and then everything kind of ended pretty, you know, pretty quickly. So I, I get out of the vehicle and I make it back to the inside the, uh, the building. And um, but on the berm right by the entry point, there's this dump truck that was smoldering. And then there was like bodies laying outside of it. And come to find out, they um, that was the VBID they were trying to get into the back of the compound. Um, and then when when EOD finally cleared it, uh, the whole back of the dump truck had 1,600 pounds of HME, homemade explosives. That's ammonium nitrate. Mm-hmm. It was full of gravel, and they had about 400 pounds of propane and gasoline. So had that thing detonated, uh, it would have rocked that whole uh, facility. Um, I would imagine we would have had a mass casualty event because. EOD, when they had to do the, the controlled demolition, had to split it up into four separate um, demo piles. They couldn't demo, they couldn't demolish it all at the same time. And it, what happened was when that vehicle had come in the back, um, they engaged it. We had a, a M240 Bravo machine gunner who was engaged on an enemy position. And literally, like they said, that bullets were like literally hitting his sandbags and and skipping off the walls around him. And he never let up on it. Uh, he was actually, um, Murrow was his name, was awarded the Bronze Star with D-Device for that because it was pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, not, to, not to stop, you know, stop the fight when, you know, things could have really been deadly for him. And they fired two AT-4 rockets from inside the building. Of course, you know, they say never do that. But they um, they cleared the room, the top floor, and then they they popped two AT4s off and you know was able to stop the vehicle before it actually got into the compound. Um, so that's that's the kind of stuff that we went went through. That was kind of a regular, um, like a regular a day for us, a day in the life in Iraq. It was crazy. I'm not familiar with those areas. I I was uh, you know I was in Fallujah and and Baghdad uh, mostly. I I well, if you were if you were in Fallujah, you were in a probably a lot hotter area than we were. Uh, we have regular yeah, depend, depending on the time of year, but that's true. So we're you know route Michigan's route route Tampa was the yep the big popular uh, MSR that uh, everybody knew, um, but I didn't get it. Was um, was where you were at more north, more east, west, south? 
uh, so, say Baghdad would be the center of the universe. Yeah, Baghdad being the center, Kirkuk, I believe, is to it's closer towards the Sunni Triangle, so that's northeast. Yeah, I believe, but a little bit more, or is it northwest? That might be northwest. I don't know. I haven't looked at a map in a while, but um, we were up towards that Sunni Triangle, as they okay. called it, because it was a very heavily Sunni populated area. We did have um, uh, Thob, uh Oh, heck, what's the name of it? We had a fob within an Iraqi fob that we had to patrol. We would do rotations out of um, near Tuz or Salamanbak, uh, which was a heavily Kurdish area. And oh, so it was pretty north then. Yeah, we were pretty north. I would say north. I want to say northwest is kind of the area that we were. Because um, I remember while we were there. They had a, a vehicle-borne IED blew up at a school and and killed like thirty or forty kids. Um, you know, just you know, we we take things for granted in this country. Um, we do, yeah. Yeah. I I I remember you know, being there for their elections. Yeah, and we were there at the same time then. I, I'll never uh, think about our elections ever again. Nope. To watching people, uh, you know, people just getting taken out, going to election booths. And they were, they were still adamant about going in there and trying to vote, yeah. you know, in their own elections, even though they were getting killed and, you know, and uh, we were trying to pull the best security we could for them, but it was intense. Yeah. And, and the, the excitement of the people when they had that ink on their finger and they would show you the ink showing you that they had voted was, yeah, we are, we're such a spoiled country when it comes yeah. to that. You know, stop whining about the elections. You want to do something, go go see what those guys went through. It really puts exactly. the current election or this this pre this most current election into perspective. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's very, I think it, it offers a different perspective. And I'm I'm curious too. So having gone through the treatment that you've gone through is talking about this story specifically. Um, is it easier to talk about? Oh, it's, it's a hundred times easier to talk about. Like sometimes, you know, you want to tell Merle's story. It's like, Oh, it just motivates me, you know, and you can feel a little bit of emotion with that, but it's not a bad emotion. It's like a proud emotion. You know, a lot of people don't realize what we ask America's sons and daughters to do, but, to to know that that guy never came off his gun, not one time, except for to reload. And you probably saved the whole group because he's oh, the one that identified it coming in the back. And, you know, a 1,500 pounds of homemade explosives. I mean, the, the, the Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City was about 500 pounds. So do the math on that one. Wow. Let's uh, take out a grid square. Yeah. Yeah, he saved all of us that day. But no, I can tell those stories that I don't have the the visceral reactions, the trauma reaction. You and you can almost hear it in your voice when you're telling it. It's almost, and I don't want this to come across in a bad way or anything, because I think it's it's probably a healthier way of talking about it. But it it almost sounds like you're telling someone else's story. Yeah, because you expect when you're telling these stories to hear, you know, deep emotion. You you literally gone through hell and back, um, and to hear you talking about it, like it's not to say it's not a big deal, but it's almost like 
you have this different tone about it and it's right uh, now it's just a memory yeah yeah mm-hmm. well that's that's really what the process what happens is we neurologically separate the emotion from the memory mm-hmm. um, and instead of having that visceral fear terror helplessness which is a trauma reaction you know you might have other emotions mixed in there but there's no more fear there's no more terror there's no more um feeling of helplessness it's it's a real story it happened you know losing 18 people in a deployment you know that's you know that's huge that's a lot of people and there was there was you know you can say i'm i'm sure you guys lost more than that in some of the areas you were in fallujah yeah you know there was there, there was units that lost you know 70 maybe 100 people you know that's that's you know enormous you know but it's still you know you lose one it's 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 a lot but how many people and a civilian like me wouldn't know this of course but how many people or how many um how many people are usually on a deployment just to give perspective into those numbers? Well, if you're looking at a battalion, there's probably roughly close to seven or 800. That's when you add all of the attachments to it. And the battalion is typically comprised of four to five companies. And each company might have a hundred to 120 people, depending upon what type of company it is. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're a, if you're a Cav scout, you may have less. If you're infantry, you may have a little bit more, you know, if it's a support unit, you might even have more than that, you know, because you might have all the medics, all the supply folks, you may have all the headquarters people. Um, so I, I would when I was a deputy sheriff, the agency that I worked in had about 700 uh, has about 700 to 800 sworn deputies. And I would always tell my zone partners, you know, when you're dealing with these veterans that have PTSD, I said, you need to take into consideration some of the things that they've experienced. And I shared my story. I said, you know, we lost 18 in our battalion in a, in a 15 month deployment. That would be like losing 18 deputy sheriffs within a 15 month window. Wow. And then when you put it in perspective like that, then they're like, holy cow, that's, you know, incredible. A lot, you know, you lose one police officer to a department. It's felt you lose that many to a department. It's really felt. Mm-hmm. So that was the way I would kind of frame it for those that would have to, cause we did, we, when I, when I was a deputy, I had to, I had to deal with vets with PTSD um, and, you know, it was, it was rough because, you know, they were just struggling and there's no solution and there's no answers for them. And the VA is just wanting to pump them full of medication. And, you know, there was no answers for them. And, and now to know that we actually have a solution and an answer, it's I'm, I'm humbled to be on this journey. And I'm, I, I can't tell you um, it's the way I look at it. It's, it's like when you find your way out of darkness, you really feel morally compelled to shine that light back in and show others the way. And that's kind of what we're trying to do is just kind of show other people how to get out of that darkness, because I can tell you with hundred percent certainty, we can fix it. You can fix it. It's all going to be, the work is going to be done in your, in your brain. Mm-hmm. It's fixable. We can literally, we, we look at PTSD like it's an injury. And if, if you're, if you break your leg, what do you do? You put a cast on it and over time it heals you know, but when you look at it as an illness, as a lifelong illness, um, which is like, you know, when I went to my VA psychiatrist, I said, I want to get reevaluated. And he thought there was something wrong. And I'm like, I want my 50% rating for the PTSD to drop to zero. And he, his, he shocked me. He goes, you can't fix PTSD. You're going to have it the rest of your life. You're just going to have to take medication and therapy. And then I ended up presenting him all of the research on it. And then the next time we talked, my wife said that he probably really thinks you're crazy now because 
because that would have been, I would have lost like probably close to $1,800 a month in VA benefits if they had, had changed it. They wouldn't change it. They wouldn't reevaluate me. So wow. I, I'm out there in the forefront. I don't want to be out here saying, hey, we can fix it. And then somebody said, well, this guy's still getting compensated. I've got names and dates of the doctor want to talk to him because it's fixable. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's dive back into that conversation because the the process of going through the, is it, it TRP? Yeah. The tactical resiliency process. <clears throat> yeah. So I think, I think it's, it's different, especially I'm surprised that these kind of things have been around since the seventies, um, right. especially to, given like the stigma. I think, I think that's something that's really interesting about mental health is we've really only been studying it for less than 200 years. Yeah. And you know, 1950s, there were still asylums, 1960s, there were asylums where we put, you know, the quote unquote crazy people in. And today we have such a different understanding of mental health and mental illness than we did, I think even 10, 15, 20 years ago. And we've come leaps and bounds from where we were. And it's been extremely helpful to the veteran community. Um, and I think this process, by the sounds of it, it is something that will really benefit um, our veterans and active duty military members. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're, we're on a mission to crush the stigma because yeah. I think we're in a very short period of time. And maybe Janelle wants to talk about um, they're going to remove post-traumatic stress disorder, major depressive disorder, the anxiety and panic disorders from the DSM-5, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that clinically diagnoses somebody, it's going to be removed as a psychological disorder because what they're finding is it's neurological. So, Janelle, if you want to talk a little bit about that, that's pretty cool. Um, Yeah. The big losers on that one's going to be big pharma. (laughs) More power to it. Good. challenge with PTSD is that it's a disorder that basically the first to 30th day where you have an event and you have emotions, negative emotions attached to the event is called acute stress disorder. On the 31st day, it becomes post-traumatic stress disorder. It is the only diagnosis in the DSM-5, which is the the statistical manual that Dan is referencing that we use for billable codes and in order to get reimbursed from the insurance, we always have to have a diagnosis on the first day that we see a client. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that is the way it's, that's the way the program is set up. So when we do that, we talk to them and it is the only diagnosis that happens that quickly. And it has actually four pages of symptoms associated with it, which is the largest in, in the big book, you know, the mental health Bible, so to speak. Mm -hmm. What they're doing now is the psychiatrists and the psychologists and the brainy people who are doing all the research are finding that as fast as the onset is, is as fast as it can be cleared. And we're proving that over and over again. I've worked with 187 clients. I worked with a firefighter today. She had a traumatic event. Her SUDS level was 10. I brought her down to zero. She cleared her emotions. We have another process called the emotions management process, and I'll have Dan talk a little bit more about that. But she cleared a bunch of emotions, anxiety, helpless, betrayal, disappointment, 
frustration, irritation, and all of those things. But I'll have Dan talk more about that. But the PTSD, actually, they're transitioning it to an injury because the onset is so fast. When you talk about depression, anxiety, you talk about bipolar, you talk about borderline personality, any personality disorders, the onset is anywhere from six months to two years. So with everything else that's psychological, you have to have a certain amount of symptoms, four out of seven symptoms, five out of seven symptoms for roughly an extended period of time. And these have to be present for a certain amount of time. So with bipolar, I believe you have to have a mania phase for a minimum of two weeks, and then you transition back to depression for a minimum of two weeks. PTSD is one of the few. I think there's a couple other ones that will be um, missing from the DSM-6 when they get it written in 2022. But a lot of the information that's coming back is that post-traumatic stress is actually an injury, not a disorder. It doesn't meet the criteria. So now what does that mean in regards to people that deal with PTSD um, or seeking treatment for PTSD? Or any anything else that I guess any other mental health issue that is going to be um, classified differently. Well, they transition many things from the DSM four TR to the DSM five. One of them is, you know, I, I see a lot of older psychiatrists who, when I receive a crisis mental health client that I have to do an assessment on, they already come to me with paperwork. And some of them are diagnosed with bipolar and major depressive disorder. Well, according to the DSM-5, you can't have both. And then if it's bipolar with psychotic symptoms, then we transition that language into what's called, they've consolidated a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So bipolar with psychotic symptoms is now referred to as schizoaffective disorder. So that's what's going to happen in 2022. It's just going to transition probably into something else, but if it's still, you know, very prevalent and it's still going to be, you know, instead of PTSD, it's going to be PTSI, you know, we're always transitioning. I mean, if you think about it, I think George Carlin did a skit back in the seventies and he was talking about uh, how we've transitioned into politically correct language. So back in world war one, PTSD was shell shock, right? Real simple, real finite, real to the point. And then now we've come up with post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's just going to transition into something. And once they figure out it's neurological and not psychological, I'm sure that they're still going, they'll just transition everything. So there'll still be, you know, the pharmaceutical companies will try and come up with something to suit the needs of their pocket, (laughs) so to speak. But there are a lot of people that PTSD affects their everyday functioning. I know it did for me. One of my many stories is I did a podcast with Dan um, a while back for Resiliency Radio, and he discussed one of the traumatic events that I went through RTM on. And one of them was I had a best friend in in tech school because I was in the what Dan picks on me, but I I was in the Air Force. Sometimes he calls it the airlines. (laughs) So. And we. (laughs) Yeah, you know, after tech school, you guys unwind and during the evenings and the in the weekends, we go to the rec center and we sing karaoke and the people who are allowed to drink do drink. And uh, I used to sing karaoke with her all the time. And we just kind of um, 
you know, one weekend she would win, I would win. And we kind of go back and forth and, and we got pretty competitive and got to know each other really well. Well, she was, she was diagnosed with bipolar, but she wouldn't take her medication. So I had not, you know, I wasn't trained like I am now to, to know the signs and symptoms and all that. Well, I was uh, stationed at Wright Pat in Ohio of all places, and I'm from Michigan. So I was a little disappointed when I filled out my 16 locations of my dream sheet and it was number eight stateside. But anyways, uh, she um, had given me a call, said that she had separated from the military. She refused to take her medication. I stood up in her wedding. She was divorced. So she was having a hard time. So I flew out to see her in uh I don't think she was, I think she was living in Wyoming at the time. So sorry about the Colorado. And I went to her house and she was living with her mother and her mother and I were going out to dinner and we invited her out to dinner and she was having a good day. You know, I had been there for three days and she was kind of up, you know, she was not necessarily manic, but she was definitely, um, she was doing a lot better because she was really, really, I first got there. And she said she was okay, you know, that she had a stomach ache and didn't really want to go. So we went out to dinner and they had one of those, those tri-level houses where the garage is on one side. And then there's like three stories Mm -hmm. that are smaller rooms. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. So when we came back, I I remember you go up to the third floor or second floor, it might've been the second floor. You go up to the second floor and that's where the, like the kitchen is. And it's just a little walkway. Well, there's a door to the garage and I put the food away, you know, cause we had leftovers or whatever. And I smelled something really funky and I, I couldn't put my finger on it. Well, I opened the door and the van was running in, in the garage. And I, I ran down the stairs as fast as I could. I pushed the button And, you know, all the smoke rolls out and and, uh, I pulled her out of the car and she was blue. So the firemen showed up and, you know, the police officers and everybody. And um, I was I desperately, you know, I knew CPR. So I was kind of working really hard and I kind of got in trouble by the firefighters because they told me that I had inhaled too much carbon monoxide and uh, she had she had passed away. Wow. So that was pretty profound for me. It, it really jammed me up for a long time because I, I felt helpless. I felt, you know, like I, I could have, should have, would have. Mm-hmm. It really affected my functioning. And, you know, I, I really, shortly after that, I got out of the military because I, I was just, I had to find something else, you know, kind of like Dan said, idle minds. So you d- you dive into many other things, but when I cleared that event, it, it really kind of released all of those negative emotions from that event. And, you know, the trauma of seeing all that, even though I was a surgical technician in the Air Force, and I was used to bullets and blood and guts. And, you know, I was deployed once and with the surgical team. And I just, uh, it's, it's one thing when it's somebody you know, mm-hmm. and there's nothing you can do, you know, so that helplessness really it just overwhelmed me. And, um, once I ran through this process, I mean, I, I never spoke about it until I talked to Dan. That was just something I didn't do. I didn't share. I didn't talk about it. I just kind of buried it. And I tried to keep on moving on, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I have found that with this process, 
you know, I'm also an empath. And, and if you know what that is, typically you can feel other people's feelings. So when I'm in session with clients and I'm working with human traffic survivors, it was just, it was horrible. And my supervisor is like, I can't hear any more stories. And I'm like, what can I do with it? You know, so not only were they, my clients struggling, but I was struggling, you know, I had all these interventions and, and all these certifications and I, my clients were progressing, but I wasn't, I was really, really, really jammed up. Mm -hmm. And so once we started doing this, you know, I, I had so many complicated traumas and in, in I had on a scale of zero to 10, I probably had, you know, six or eight tens. And then I had some eights and sixes and some things were buried under everything else. I felt like an onion. You know, I just kept peeling back the layers till I felt like I could thrive. And I'm finally there. And, and now I'm just motivated more than ever to help everyone. You know, it's like, look, we have something that you can be your best self, you know, and it's just, I don't know. It's amazing. I love helping people. And, you know, I, I work as many people as I can in a day, you know, when people call me, it's like, yes, let's schedule something right now. And I'm like, Ooh, I got to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I really love what we do. And, and I want to help as many people out there as we can find. And it's not, you know, a lot of what I've learned through this process is the big thing about sharing the content is one, it affects me. And then I have to go process with somebody else, which means I have to pay somebody to talk to them about somebody else's stuff. And I'm like, well, this isn't productive. <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute, I have to get therapy because I'm a therapist. What? <laughs> and and you know, know that everyone deserves therapy. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you can, you can work on your wellness and you can work on your relationships and, you know, this isn't an end all be all either. I mean, I have a lot of people who I've removed their negative emotions and I've got their, their PSSI scores down to zero, but I still work with them on their relationships. I work mm -hmm. with their husbands and wives. I work with their children. I, you know, I'm, I worked with somebody out in California not too long ago. So we're going next nationwide here shortly. Fantastic. But, uh, it's pretty amazing. I just, I love, my thing is there's a oxytocin that releases in the brain and Dan can speak more about this too. And there's just a, such a joy when you see that relief on somebody's face and after they run the process and they get rid of all their junk, it's like they start yawning their, their flush comes back in their face and, and you can see, they just have a, you know, they pick up their steps, so to speak. So we do a lot of work on zoom. So we don't necessarily have to be face to face, but we do have people who like that. I had a, a Marine who was like, well, I, I have something to happen and I really want to see somebody face to face. I'm like, where are you at? And he's like, Tennessee. And I said, here's this number, this lady's number. She's trained. You know, mm -hmm. I also have some, the, the stigma, definitely. I, you know, I'm a mental health clinician and, and some people want to talk to a licensed professional, even though it's not necessary. And then we have some other people who don't like the air force, you know, they, they're all, they got negative emotions toward that because of the way that they were treated or whatever. So sometimes I have to go, Hey, Dan, can you work with this guy? or this girl, or this person. We're just jealous. That's why we don't like it. <laughs> That's exactly. But it's all about the relationship. It's all about course, establishing yeah. what we call rapport. So <laughs> when you find those commonalities, and I think 
you know, therapists naturally do it. Police officers naturally do it. Firefighters naturally do it because when you're in a crisis situation, they're trying to get you at least on the other side. They just need our tools. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good place to pause. Check out part two to hear more. And um, I think in part two, we'll dive into um, the actual process. Thanks for joining us for the first part of this story and this experience with um, Dr. Janelle Royster and Dan Jarvis of the, um, Dan, are you the founder of the 22-0? Yes, I'm the founder and the president. And Founder and president. <laughs> Some good titles there. Um, yeah, tune into the next episode of the Holman Hero Salute to learn more about their efforts in helping people with mental health. This podcast is brought to you by the Holman Harris Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, support, volunteer, or donate, please visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at Dairy Cam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. And thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Holman Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.